0: Welcome to Neurology Journal Club ALS and COVID-19. The Journal Club podcasts are developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and are part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by educational grants from Acadia Pharmaceuticals, Biogen M.A., and Mitsubishi Tanabe Pharma America. In this episode, Dr. Richard Bedlack and Dr. Terry Hyman Patterson discuss several papers that relate to issues ALS patients face during the pandemic, as well as what they are seeing in their own clinics. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at journalclubpodcast.com forward slash ALS. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Bedlack is a professor of neurology at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Dr. Hyman Patterson is a professor of neurology and director of the MDA ALS Center of Hope in the Lewis Katz School of Medicine, Temple University in Philadelphia. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Let's join our discussion. The COVID-19 pandemic has affected all of our lives. We've learned about social distancing, mask wearing and hand hygiene. If we are careful, we can hopefully avoid getting it until we have the opportunity to receive a vaccine. But for people with chronic conditions, COVID-19 is a whole other ballgame. Dr. Bedlack and Dr. Hyman Patterson, thank you for joining me today. Um, in your world of treating ALS patients, what are some of the issues that ALS patients are facing during the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: Well, there are so many problems that uh, our pals are facing right now. It starts with ALS is really an isolating disease to begin with. And you're starting at a baseline of feeling somewhat cut off from everybody because you're not mobile. You don't get out that much. And now you're restricted to home. So it's even more isolating. And in fact, there have been studies that showed during COVID, depression and anxiety are increased above and beyond their caregiver in, in folks with ALS. And so it's really emotionally draining not to mention the fact that there's also the anxiety over not being able to go into clinic to see your care team. You may be doing Zoom uh, clinic visits, but Zoom clinic visits, while they're okay, they're not as personalized uh, as going face-to-face, and it's just not the same. And it's not the same for us as physicians, because it's kind of hard to Certainly hard to make a diagnosis of ALS by a video exam. And it's hard to also care for people and really get a handle on them on a Zoom visit. Plus, it's technology. And so that's, I'm sure, been very emotionally draining on folks, isolation, not getting to to clinic, not being able to go to clinic. And also, that means that we can do a video visit But I can't track the disease parameters that are very important for decision-making. Can't always have a weight. We can ask families to do a weight, but if somebody's bed-bound or chair-bound, it's not that easy out of the clinic to get a weight to, to monitor their nutritional status. Can't get a breathing test, which is really important. If I have a good video, I can tell if somebody's having difficulty breathing, but I don't have those those things that I use for decision-making about their care. And maintaining good care support is important. I certainly can still do some symptom management. The other thing is, is that people with, with ALS need caregivers. And um, Rick can certainly talk to this, but there are people coming in and out of the house by necessity all the time. There are people coming in to help with treatments such as Daravone and also for care and home care. And this increases, you know, the risk of exposure. And of course, we'll, we'll talk a little bit later about are folks with ALS at greater risk of getting the disease or if they get it, what can happen? Certainly, we know that they have respiratory muscle weakness, which means if you do get it, you're probably going to have a higher risk if you get lung involvement. Um, I think that I'll I'll let Rick add to this. I'm sure that Rick has a lot to say also. Uh, Rick, did you want to add some things to to what I've mentioned?
2: Yes, Terry, thank you. I, I completely agree with you that there's been a psychological toll that's been taken on our patients and their families, as well as our healthcare teams. You know, we had gotten pretty comfortable as far as how we made diagnoses and you know, introduced very complicated options, including things like Rilizal and Adaravone and multidisciplinary team care, feeding tubes, ventilators, those kinds of things. I think we were all much more comfortable with those so-called big decisions, doing them face-to-face. And, you know, for a long time in the past year, we've been severely restricted on being able to do that. And so we've had to, to learn to adapt. I think ultimately it will help us going forward, we all will have a lot more um, telemedicine infrastructure than we've ever, we've ever had before. Uh, we're all learning to measure some things by telemedicine that we never could do before. We're testing some surrogates, for example, for force vital capacity, like counting out loud on one breath and sustained phonation, which are looking very promising. You know, Terry, I do, you, you mentioned uh, maybe a, the possibility of an increased risk for patients. And I, I do want to talk a little bit more about that because I think there's, there's sort of two issues to this. You know, the first issue is are people with ALS at an increased risk of getting COVID? And second, are they at an increased risk of a bad outcome if they do get it? And I would say the answer to both is yes. And you, you touched on, you know, the, the main reason for the first part of it, are they at an increased risk of getting the infection? Well, even, you know, when they try to stay away from clinic and get their care by virtual visits, it's not possible for them to completely isolate socially like we want them to. As you mentioned, they're really dependent upon people coming in and out of their homes. You know, this could be home health, this could be home PT, home OT, uh, nursing and infusion companies for drugs like Adaravone. Um, It could be equipment vendors, bringing them pieces of equipment that we think they need, but it's really impossible for them to isolate to the degree that a healthy person can. So I think they are at an increased risk of getting the infection. And I think we'll talk in a few minutes about why we're worried that that they might be at an increased risk of having a bad outcome from it if they get it.
0: We had talked um, previously uh, before this call about uh, the fact that the CDC does not put ALS on its list of high risk conditions, even though a lot of the comorbidities are what ALS patients have.
2: Um, Dr. Bedlack, would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this is a really important point. So, as everyone knows who's listening to this, you know, COVID-19 vaccines are rolling out across America. You know, the first wave of vaccines were given to healthcare providers who have face-to-face contact, potentially with COVID-19 infected patients. The second wave was, was people over the age of 75, and now most states are rolling vaccines out to anyone who's 65 and older, regardless of what other conditions they have. Uh, The next wave of vaccines is proposed to be people who are at a high risk of a bad outcome from COVID-19. And exactly how that's going to be defined is not clear right now. The CDC does have on their website a list of the conditions they consider to be at an increased risk of a bad outcome. ALS is not on that list. They have a secondary list of conditions where people may possibly be at an increased risk and on that list they list neurological diseases including dementia but still they don't list als by name and i'm hoping that um you know we can find a way to change that that we can find a way to get people with als the vaccines in this next wave i think it's especially important
1: dr Haman patterson anything to add well I uh, full agreement uh, with rick and i always say I, I base that increased risk on the respiratory muscle weakness and so people with respiratory illnesses. And so I consider ALS a, as also having respiratory illness. And so I, I try to push on on that when people ask me if they're at higher risk.
2: Yeah, and the CDC, uh, Terry, as, as I mentioned, does list dementia. And we know that a significant percentage of people with ALS have cognitive impairment.
1: Yeah, well, 40%. You can always make that argument, too. Right. So in the uh, comorbidities that
0: ALS patients have, um, particularly with cognitive impairment and visiting with them over Zoom or, or telehealth visits, um, how is that affecting your medication management, um, making sure they're keeping up with their meds? I mean, how how are you assessing that now?
2: I can, I can speak to, you know, what we do. So we sort of have, um, you know, one main decision point early in the course of managing a person with ALS is, you know, how we talk to them. And that depends a lot about, you know, what their cognitive status is. And that's why we screen everybody the first time that we see them and the screening tools that we use can be, can be done virtually. But the problem is that 40% that has cognitive impairment, you know, what I do next is I, 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 turn to the family and I say, you know, I've got a family member who's sick and I know what I wanna do is, is sort of take a back seat and say, you know, whatever my family member wants to do with all these complicated decisions that you're putting in front of them, it's fine with me. I'm just gonna support them through this, but they're the decision maker. And what I explained to them is, unfortunately you can't do that now because this person has cognitive impairment, they're gonna need help making decisions. And, you know, these, these decisions are not simple. I mean, uh, even a person who's cognitively intact would struggle with decisions like whether or not to have a feeding tube placed, whether or not to use non-invasive and then invasive ventilation, very challenging. And finally, they need to monitor compliance. You know, again, having a family member, I sometimes feel like I'm nagging if I remind them to take their medicines. But the problem is for folks with cognitive impairment, they might not remember to take their medicine or use this piece of equipment that we know is gonna help them. And this is probably part of the reason that people with ALS who have cognitive impairment are much more likely to suffer complications like falls. They're much more likely to be hospitalized and they have markedly shorter survival. You know, getting back to the, the question about you know, how that's changed, you know, when you try to incorporate a whole family into a, a Zoom visit, it's just not quite the same. Typically you can only see one or maybe two people on the Zoom, it's, it's not quite the same as gathering everyone into a huddle and you know, getting that feeling that now we're gonna have to approach this as a team which is what we like to do when there's cognitive impairment.
1: Dr. Ivan Patterson, anything to add? Well, absolutely. I fully uh, endorse what Rick's been saying. And you know, I, I'd add to that, we've incorporated a pre-screen uh, before the video calls where we try to get the caregiver, the primary caregiver, to go over all of the issues so we know ahead of time what we're going to face. Uh, we also incorporate the whole team. So we have a Zoom call with the doctor myself and and our pals and their family as rick said when you look into folks homes it's can be very interesting right rick absolutely and and you see a lot um and then the second call after i ascertain what i think are the real issues combined with what caregivers identify and and the pal the whole team will will have a, a visit and go through all of these issues and I think that I'd like to stress safety, you know, especially in the cognitively impaired folks. Safety is a big issue because they really don't attend to the details of walking safely and doing things, eating safely, and doing things uh, safely. But you know, we can we can do some symptom managing, but the decision making points, you know, those sort of branch points where you have to decide whether or not you're going to to be on a ventilator. We're going to, you know, get a feeding tube. We can't always time those discussions appropriately with a video visit, because I pointed out we can't do the PFT, the breeding test, and we can't always uh, weigh folks and, and assess their nutrition as adequately as we'd like. And I think we've all used the counting test. We it's an old test we used in myasthenia gravis and now we're looking at it in als but i think rick hit all the nails on the heads. i think that's all you know right down terry. the line
2: yeah terry i was i was smiling uh as you were mentioning you know uh some of the positives of video visits i mean we talked about some of the negatives the, the depersonalization and the you know the inability to measure things the inability to get that sort of family powwow that we have when we're in person but you know, there are some advantages, obviously the travel advantage, um, but the other one is, is sometimes you get a look into a person's house and you see something that you had no idea was there, and I, I just remember vividly as you were mentioning that, you know, we had seen a patient, made the diagnosis, instituted a lot of, you know, changes, you know, medication changes, equipment changes, and it was time for a one-month follow-up, and, and the patient decided they would rather do it by video. And so, you know, we were doing the video visit and remember this patient had just been in my clinic and seen my entire team spent most of the day there a month ago. And, you know, one of the points that the wife was making was, you know, we're having a little trouble with the shower. And I said, oh, well, you got a laptop, bring me into your bathroom. Let's take a look at what we're dealing with. So the shower that they had had a step that was about a foot high. And the way they were managing this was inside the shower, they had a plastic chair. So she would wheel the patient up to the step lift them and throw him over the step onto the plastic chair. <laughs> and like I said, I, I don't know how we missed this a month earlier, but sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. Uh,
1: I call these war stories. Yeah. You know,
2: yeah. yeah where some, you, like I you say, look sometimes at, there's a benefit.
1: Oh yeah. Same things happen to me and, or, or they give me the tour of the house and with the, with the iPhone and carry it around so I can see exactly what they're dealing with. And it actually is helpful uh, because you can see, oh, power wheelchair is not going to fit through those hallways, so (laughs) absolutely.
0: That's really interesting. So in some ways, there's a a benefit to having some of these calls where you actually can be inside their home. Let's turn a little bit to um, the paper that was in the Annals of Neurology by Pilato and colleagues. Um, It was an otherwise healthy individual who um, developed severe neurological symptoms after contracting COVID-19. What are the implications, do you think, of findings su- uh, such as from this case study? Um, and what have you seen in your clinic with your ALS patients who have contracted COVID-19? Dr. Bedlack
2: a great question, Candice. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of worried that people with ALS are not only at an increased risk of getting this, but an increased risk of having a bad outcome from it. And, you know, we talked earlier about the fact that they often have comorbid conditions, which are on the CDC list, even though ALS is not. But this paper um, showed that COVID-19 can cause neuroinflammation. I mean, this was a 60-year-old man who was otherwise healthy who got COVID and developed something called akinetic mutism, meaning, you know, his brain got so inflamed that he lost the ability to move and talk for a while. And, you know, there were multiple markers of inflammation seen in his spinal fluid. And really what made him better was was very powerful anti-inflammatories. High-dose steroids are what made him get better. And, you know, we know that part of the pathophysiology of ALS is neuroinflammation. And so if a person with ALS gets sick with something that causes more neuroinflammation, it follows that the progression of their disease could speed up. And although I, I don't have access to a large you know, COVID registry where I can see you know, hundreds of people with ALS and what happened to them, I can say that in my own clinic, I've had about six people get COVID. And of those, two of the, the patients who got it were doing extremely well before the infection. I'd followed both of them for years and they were hardly changing and still uh, independent and a lot of their activities of daily living still had a great quality of life. And subsequent to the infection, they lost a ton of motor function in a very short period of time. So it really looks to me like, you know, the, the infection ramped up neuroinflammation, leading to a marked progression of their disease. Dr. Hyman Patterson.
1: Yeah, I've had only, a, I haven't had six people get COVID. I have I've had only about three of our folks get COVID. And actually, it's interesting, Rick, because they were, almost asymptomatic, except for one. And the one was someone who was coming in for a feeding tube. And when they came in, they had a lot of upper respiratory congestion. So I checked them for COVID and sure enough, they had it. He was probably the sickest, but he doesn't seem to have accelerated. However, having said that, I have heard an experience from other ALS doctors that that they've had folks with ALS who have gotten COVID and they have seemed to accelerate. And so I do think that there is that risk that if you're in that phase of your disease with ALS, where neuroinflammation is damaging rather than protective, that driving that inflammation is going to accelerate the changes in motor neurons in your brain. So I I think it does make some sense. And we know that that this is an inflammatory disease and that there is a cytokine storm, as we say, which is a a storm of inflammation. So I I think it is is a real concern, let alone the concern that when somebody gets COVID, they can get the COVID pneumonia and it's gonna take a lot less to throw somebody with ALS over the edge who has respiratory muscle involvement than it does uh, somebody who's, who's healthy. And I think that 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 creates a a real risk. And, you know, I'll be interested to see uh, the true uh, mortality numbers. I know that Rick is going to speak a little bit to that, but um, I would suspect there is a a higher mortality in folks who get COVID and who have respiratory muscle involvement and and ALS. And Rick, you might want to comment on that.
2: Yeah. Thanks. I, and
1: I
0: think just to jump in, I, I I think that leads us to that VA study by uh, Burns and colleagues that found a tenfold increase in mortality in veterans who had spinal cord injury.
2: Yeah. And this is another thing that worries me. So again, I've I've kind of tried to scour the world to find any large collection of people with with ALS or something similar that got COVID, you know, that also tracked what happened to them afterward. And you know this publication is, is the one publication I can find that seems to be relevant. So this is a, a large registry of veterans with spinal cord injury. And they are tracking, you know, what percentage of them get COVID and then what percentage of them die from COVID within the next 30 days from their positive test. And so in this registry, they found 140 veterans with spinal cord injury. And 26 of them died within the next 30 days from their positive test. So, you know, that's a that's a COVID-related mortality rate of almost 20%. And, you know, my understanding is worldwide, the mortality from COVID is about 2%. So that's almost a 10-fold increase in mortality. Now, we don't, we don't have published data specific to ALS. I know of two people who are working on this. Dr. Ben Brooks, formerly of the Carolinas Medical Center, And Dr. Desai, who works there now, are working on a COVID registry as part of the Northeast ALS Consortium. They only have a handful of patients in it, at least as as, uh, when it was last publicly presented in December. Uh, So we don't really have a lot to go on there. Also, speaking to some of the spinal cord injury folks at the VA, there are people with ALS in that spinal cord uh, injury registry. And preliminary analysis do suggest that The COVID-related mortality of a veteran with ALS who gets COVID is very high. I don't have the final numbers on that yet. We're still working on those, but we hope to publish that soon. And the point of all this is getting back to vaccine prioritization. You know, I don't think anyone knows for sure, you know, what that next phase is going to look like. I mean, is it going to be just specific ICD-9 codes that get vaccinated? Will you be able to be vaccinated if you have a note from your doctor? I'm not sure. But I think the time is now to try to answer some of these questions. And if we can confirm that people with ALS really are at a markedly increased risk of death from COVID, then we need to get that specifically listed on that CDC website so that these folks can get vaccine in a timely manner.
1: Mm-hmm. Dr. Hyman Patterson, anything to add? Well, I, you know Rick said it all. I mean, it's <laughs> not unexpected, right, Rick? It, it's not unexpected that folks with respiratory muscle involvement are gonna already at a baseline are gonna have a harder time. Uh, Plus they're immobile. And so if you increase the clotting propensity that we've seen with COVID-19, I'd also be interested not only in the incidence of pneumonia and the survival statistics, but what about the coagulopathy? Um, Are they at higher risk because they're less mobile? You know, time will tell as, as the data shakes out on these cases. Uh, and absolutely, I, I've i told every one of my pals that I want them to get the vaccination as soon as they possibly can to sign up and to say that they have, you know, I actually tell them to, whether it's a lie or not, that I think it's true that they have a condition that makes them at higher risk. It makes sense.
0: Um, are there any closing points that... Uh, you would like to make Dr. Bedlack, uh, for clinicians who are listening to this podcast?
2: Yeah, Candace. I think we all need to try to advocate for our patients when it comes to these vaccines. And if the data continues to point toward people with ALS having an increased risk of death from COVID, you know, hopefully my colleagues will at least be willing to give their patients letters saying that in their opinion, they should be prioritized for a COVID vaccine. The last thing I'll mention is that we need to, as a community, you know, Terry and I and, 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 you know, other clinicians and scientists from around the world need to keep studying this. I mean, we need registries of people with ALS who get COVID. We need to understand what's happening to them afterward. It does seem like so far we, we have hints about an increased risk of death, but death from what? We don't know. And also included in that registry, we need to track people with ALS who get the COVID-19 vaccine. I mean, right now, Terry and I both agree that we think the benefits far outweigh the risks, but the reality is there haven't been that many people with ALS who've gotten these vaccines. I can't think of a reason there would be a problem, but we need to follow that and be sure that these things really are safe in the long-term for our patients. Mm
0: -hmm. Dr. Hyman Patterson, any last words?
1: I would just add in this interval where our PALS aren't yet getting vaccinated, or at least not everybody is, You have to have a lower threshold. If a PAL calls you with upper respiratory and has any possibility of having COVID, they need to be tested. And you have to have a lower threshold to admit them to the hospital or or to get them uh, where they can be fully assessed uh, because folks can go go over the edge very rapidly with COVID. And I would imagine our PALs can go over even faster because of their respiratory compromise and they should be aggressively treated when they do, if they do uh, have, have COVID. Well, this has been a, an excellent discussion.
0: Uh, there's so much that we are all learning. I envision many, many retrospective studies <laughs> down the road, looking back on uh, the era of COVID in our, in our patients. Um, so thank you, Dr. Bedlock and Dr. Hyman Patterson for joining me today, really appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: Yes, thank you very much for making this uh, It's an important area to cover, important for people to hear about.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Remember to visit journalclubpodcast.com forward slash ALS to receive your credit and evaluate this program. For our other neurology podcasts, please visit journalclubpodcast.com forward slash neurology. Our podcasts are a convenient way to earn your continuing medical education credits.